Contra is friction. Contra is Contra is nuanced. Contra, Contra is, is transgressive. Good trouble. Contra, Contra is, is collaborative. Contra is a podcast. Is a space for thinking about design critically. Contra is subversive. Contra is texture. How are disabled artists challenging the design of museums and public spaces? In this episode of Contra, Critical Design Lab member Kevin Gotkin and I talked to Shannon Finnegan, whose work draws attention to the need for rest in spaces that often require extended sitting, standing, and movement. I'm so excited to welcome Shannon Finnegan to the podcast today. And I'm also here with Kevin Gotkin, who appeared in an earlier episode and is part of the Critical Design Lab. So welcome, Shannon and Kevin. Thank you so much for having me. Hey. Yeah, my pleasure. <laughs> so, um, the reason why we are talking to you, Shannon, um, and that Kevin is part of this conversation is that uh, you've both been um, kind of doing projects related to stairs in New York City and uh, doing artistic and kind of scholarly interventions into the sort of like mandatory stair use politics that is kind of pervading the landscape right now and these ideas about like taking the stairs to be healthy and that kind of stuff. So um, we're really excited to talk to you about your projects that emphasize sitting um, and also protesting stairs. And um, I think also that you're participating in and kind of contributing to and building this moment around disability artistry that seems like is happening in New York City right now. So I'm excited to talk more about that. Um, so why don't we, to get started, um, talk about your museum benches and that project and kind of how it evolved. Yeah, I mean, I think when it comes to access in general, I'm often thinking about the kind of long-term and short-term goals that we have. And a lot of the work around access seems like a really long-term project, you know, especially thinking about the way that all of these systems of oppression are intertwined. And like, we're talking about really massive systemic change. And then on the other hand, I see things where I'm like, this could happen tomorrow. You know, like if we, if we prioritize this, like we could have this right now. Um, and that was really where, yeah, I mean, I, I go to museums in New York. Um, I think this project was inspired by a visit to MoMA in particular, and just feeling like this is an exhausting experience for me. This is so hard on my body and the seating is so sparse and there's so many people gathered around every, you know, every little bench and um, yeah, just feeling like, why, why is it like this? Um, and so, yeah, thinking about how, um, yeah, so I, well, so I started doing some research around benches. I think my original instinct was that museums actually don't want us to linger there, that that's the reason that there aren't benches. Um, and of course, there's all sorts of problems in that in terms of the way that that affects different people differently. But 
you know, I was talking to lots of curators and people in uh, education departments and they were like, no, 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 like that's definitely not it. Um, and I was talking to people and I was like, oh, is it just the cost? Like, is it just that benches are expensive? Um, and like that, that wasn't it. And then finally I figured out that it's mostly curators and the way that um, curators envision a space and certain things around like sight lines and vistas of an exhibition and this kind of like, framework that they have for what an exhibition like quote unquote should look like um and so I think that was part of what sparked me to think about like other ways of getting seating into an exhibition and thinking about seating as an artwork um and so I designed this series of benches that all have text on them um and so for example, like one says, this exhibition has asked me to stand for too long, sit if you agree. Some are a little bit more open-ended, like I'd rather be sitting, sit if you agree. Um, some more kind of like represent, uh, uh, reference like the kind of embodied experience that I was having more like, you know, um, I'd love to spend more time here, but all the standing is painful. Um, yeah, and I think it's also been part of, I don't think I realized this at the time, but part of it has been um, thinking about what, how, kind of like what disability brings to protest or how, um, how to kind of like create protest experiences that are um, like doable, at least for me. Um, and so thinking about this as, you know, right, like we think about protest in all these super ableist terms around you know standing and marching but there's of course like such a rich history of sitting as protest um and i yeah i think one of the things i'm interested in with the benches is that they like offer um kind of like a voice or a, a form of protest while also offering like an amenity and rest and um yeah I'm so struck by um, how the sort of like ocular centrism of the design of a space would be what leads to the absence of benches, like the whole lines of sight thing. And um, it's so it kind of like presents like a cross disability issue, too, because it presumes that people are not only like um, you know, seeing the space and using it in that way, but also then able to stand for long periods of time or walk for long periods of time. Yeah, I mean, I think I see the way that arts institutions are approaching exhibitions is an extremely narrow set of experiences. Um, and both like myself and I think lots of other disabled people have been trying to expand that and push back on that in different ways. Um, and yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think the, um, the kind of, yeah, ocular centrism of, of exhibition spaces is, is a huge part of that. I think that's an area that I'm still learning a lot about. I can't, I'm from my training is very visually focused. My background is in drawing and printmaking. Um, and that's something that I have been trying to figure out a lot more recently in terms of, um, 
yeah, thinking about other disabled people as the primary audience for my work and then what that means. Um, yeah, how that influences what I'm making and how I'm making it. And um, specifically, I think for me, um, it's been important to think about how um, how the ways that I I have worked have have centered vision and how I can kind of shift that or change that. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I definitely, um, I want to come back later in our conversation to that idea of disabled people primarily being the audience for your work. Um, because it seems like what part of this moment is that there's so much experimentation around like what the materiality of a space can be and how you communicate information about it. So there's like deaf space architecture and, um, you know, various things like that. So, yeah, I'd, I'd be really interested and curious to see um, how things like that take shape. Um, another thing I really love about the benches um well, they're blue, and I think they're very striking. Um, but I like the idea that they're interactive. So there's a, there's a kind of like the text that says sit if you agree uh, indicates some sort of like political project, but also a political practice that people can kind of like opt into. So I wonder if you could say a little bit about that. I guess what part of it was that I felt like people were already being pretty clear about their preferences in museum spaces because the benches are always so full. Um, like I, I felt like that was already being communicated to the museum on some level that like, this is something we want because like, look, we're using this all the time. Um, and so I think I was interested in like making that even more explicit, like, like, yes, we're using this feature because this is important to us on an access level um, and trying to figure out, like, I think something I'm also thinking about in my work is, like, um, what are what are points of connection between, like, disabled and non-disabled experiences? And seating in museums is, like, such a, like, broad-based kind of, um, yeah, there's just a lot of people who are interested in that, who lots of whom don't identify as disabled. And so it felt like something, um, and that was part of how I shaped the text was to kind of leave that open-ended. So it wasn't like someone had to identify as disabled or, or kind of like take on that label in order to kind of show support for that idea. I haven't um, actually like been in a space with your benches yet, but it seems like there's this idea of people kind of like voting with their bodies or something like that, kind of like leaving data, um, leaving evidence and um, and making that explicit as part of the critical project of this versus other types of seating design that might be more aesthetic or kind of like functional or something like that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think one thing I've been thinking about is as I kind of evolved the project is like how to make it like it was really important to me that the bench had a back when I was doing it because I see a when I see a backless bench in a space, I'm like, oh, that's kind of like a perch. Like that's designed for me to like be there briefly, but that's not really an invitation to like stay there and relax. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the benches are made out of MDO, which is basically like a type of plywood and 
you know, firm, firm surfaces are good for some bodies, but I think some, some bodies would really like a, a cushion. <laughs> um, so I've been thinking about how I can uh, do something similar, but with like pillows or, or th- things that feel like there's even more kind of sources of, of comfort there. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask about the bench design itself. Um, because like, there's so there's so many kind of like non-apparent specifications around seating usually that kind of invite different ways of like taking up space. Like maybe like you lean back or maybe it encourages you to like put your arms behind you or lay down or, um, so what were some of the considerations that went into the template for this bench? Well, so this is a pretty new venture for me um, in terms of like designing seating. I think like in my dream world, it would have been something where if I had the expertise to really study kind of like ergonomics or think about, um, yeah, having even like kind of curved shapes in it. I think there were some limitations just in terms of like my ability to fabricate it and create it. but yeah, I definitely, it was really important to me that there was a back um, because of the way that that um, both for me is like much more comfortable. And also I feel like there's a real signaling around that. Um, and then definitely not having any of those like dividers or things like that um, so that you have the option to lie down on it. Um, the bench is about six feet. So there's, um, it's pretty, you know, depending on your height, you can you can stretch out on it a little bit. Um, I think I would have maybe liked armrests on the side or something like that, but that was kind of like beyond my um, my capabilities. And I was originally thinking that it was going to like pack flat. That was that was a big dream <laughs> um, for these that ended up not really um, coming to fruition. <laughs> um, but that was part of why uh, the it's like a pretty um, planer design and so you're kind of like learning like woodworking and furniture design and stuff as part of this um I mean I I think that they look very comfortable and it's interesting because right now there's such a politics around like as you said um kind of like public benches having dividers that sort of like uh, um, like regulatory addition that prevents people from sleeping on benches and stuff. And so it seems like a simple thing, like having a bench that's long enough for a body and wide enough for a body to lay down on is actually kind of, uh, pretty revolutionary. Yeah. And I, one of the things that I, I've made some that are for museum spaces, but I also, drafted some text and did some sketches around ones that could exist in public space. Cause that's another thing that I'm thinking about all the time as I'm moving through New York city is like having opportunities to rest are so important to me. And it's, it's so rare and it's um, so marked by class and by kind of like access to um, like a cafe or something like that. There's just, I'm just always struck by how little um, public seating there is. Yeah. And and that it gets also concentrated in wealthier neighborhoods so that it's like when you're on like, you know, the upper east side of Manhattan, there's like lots of seating options suddenly available. But then um, in other areas, it's really, yeah, really sparse. Yeah, totally. There's it seems like there's so much regulation that goes into deciding where like bus benches go versus 
little perches that someone can lean up against and shelters and stuff. I've done a little bit of work with some tactical urbanists here in Nashville and we just go around and like build benches and build like, I think Kevin actually, you volunteered at one of those events too, didn't you? A few years ago. Yeah. Um, kind of like creating like public seating or even like roundabouts and curb cuts and crosswalks and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. And um, so, Shannon, we had your benches. So the benches were recently in an exhibition called Talk Back that um, was at a gallery called Flux Factory. And I helped throw the closing party for the show. And we put the one of the benches right in front of the DJ booth, which was like an honor for me. Like I have a Finnegan bench in front of my uh, <laughs> DJ stand. It was amazing. Um, and one of the things that I just was thinking about as the party was going on is that the text gets covered up when people use it, right? Like that's part of what you said earlier, Amy, about the interactivity and the kind of participation that the the pieces invite. And for some people it becomes one of those like games where they're trying to figure out what it what it says, you know. And then I was realizing like that's really that's really not the point when this is a um a piece that sits on that beautiful interface of access and artistry, right? Or access and aesthetics, like that the feeling of sitting down and experiencing rest in an exhibition space that typically doesn't have that kind of, um, you know, feature is a totally different kind of knowledge than the, the typical cura the, the privileged curatorial perspective of being able to stand back and look, you know, so, so for some people, they were like, Ooh, the bench says something. It must be a work. I don't want to sit there. And then as soon as people sat down and, and covered up the text, it just, it just integrated itself into the whole kind of mm. um, access ecosystem of the party and of the exhibition on a daily basis, I think. So, you know, that was something that I was thinking about too, that the role of the text um, in the bench forces this kind of, new experience of the body too once the text gets um gets covered up by people actually using it mm. i love that so i'm wondering what's the relationship between the museum benches project and then your other project which is the anti-stairs lounge yeah both um similar in that they're both trying to think about how I can intervene as an artist into inaccessible spaces. Um, I think, yeah, the the Anti-Stairs Club Lounge, there's been kind of two versions of it, but the original version was created for the Wasaic Project, which is an exhibition space that's in a historic um, mill building. So it's this super vertical uh, space. It's seven floors with no ramp or elevator above the ground floor. And they have this big group exhibition of emerging artists every summer. There's like 50 to 70 artists. Um, and yeah, a lot of that work is is not, not um, accessible at all. And so I, you know, I was thinking about how I, um, yeah, how, like, what my responsibility or role was as a disabled artist in terms of engaging with that space. Um, and was like, felt like I really wanted to do something that directly addressed the inaccessibility of the space. And so I, I created what's in, essentially like an enclosed room on the ground floor of the exhibition space. Um, and in, in the room, there's seating, there's um, some light refreshments, there's chilled seltzer, there's a charging station. Um, 
And, but that space is behind a locked door. And so in order to get access to the space, you have to sign in at the front desk saying that you're not going upstairs. So the lounge becomes a space that's exclusively for people who are staying on the ground floor. Um, Yeah. And I think for me, I was trying to think about how to do something that was additive to the space that, that like, be part of something that creates a better experience for a disabled visitor to the space while also being really clear about the limitations of the space and the inaccessibility. Um, yeah, so that that was um, the original version of it. And then um, more recently, I did an iteration of the project for this um, thing that was built in New York called The Vessel, which um, is referred to as a public artwork, but it's really at the scale of a building. Um, it's, it's eight floors, 154 interconnected stairways. Um, they sometimes say a one mile vertical climb. Um, yeah, and I just, I mean, it's just so frustrating to have something like that um, be built. I think, you know, we so often hear around accessibility that like it's not possible because there isn't a budget or because it's a historic building. And so to see something with, you know, a $150 million budget that's brand new construction that is just so um, ableist in its conception and, and the way it imagines the public was just really frustrating for me. Um, and I felt like I really wanted to do something in response to that. And so I organized um, an anti-stairs club lounge to protest that space. Um, I had to, I was worried about how, you know, whether we would be asked to leave or, um, you know, interactions with security or police. So I designed it to, um, I worked really hard to make it so that it was really hard for them to point to anything we were doing as not allowed. Mm. Um, so the lounge basically consisted of um, people who are like in the lounge were wearing these neon orange beanies with this anti-stairs symbol on it. And then um, people, there were these newspapers that had Kevin's article about the vessel printed inside, but the exterior part of it had this, it's just said anti-stairs club lounge, so it kind of functioned as signage. Um, and then there were cushions and um, snacks. And uh, yeah, I think for me, it was, I felt like the best way to protest that the vessel was to just show how we as disabled people are interested in using public space and, and what, what we want from public space, which I think is a lot just like the, you know, opportunity to be together and lounge and um, gather. And so that was really kind of the purpose of it was to do that. Oh, and then the other thing is that everyone who participated in the lounge had to sign a pledge that said, um, as long as I live, I will not go up a single step of the vessel. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very good. <laughs> Kevin, do you want to say anything about um, your article and and also this action? Because you were part of it, right? Yeah, it was such an honor to be a part of that action. Um, yeah, I had so um, I had been asked to write a piece for um, an architecture review journal out of Columbia University called the Avery Review. It's a it's a great publication because they 
they're really sick of the way that architecture reviews happen. You know, it's usually like famous person lends their name to some review that's like a glowing write-up of another famous person's thing. Like reviews just tend to like bolster, like no one is getting into like the th- the stuff, right? It just is all this kind of reputation economy or whatever. So they like started this journal and were like, let's do it differently. Like let's, let's really review stuff. Even if what you're reviewing is like a blueprint or like a pamphlet or whatever, you know? So they asked me to um to think about the vessel um and um and i really was like oh this is this is great a lot of my research is about kind of public culture of endurance and it was once i just started to just scrape the surface it was just so overwhelming right like the the publicity the rollout around this design um it's a heather thomas heatherwick is kind of a um golden boy of of architecture and it you know the way that this was decided was very insular there was really no kind of public deliberation around this design um even though the whole hudson yards um development was heavily funded by public funds um you know it's a kind of quintessential neoliberal uh, model for how a public space gets redeveloped primarily to support commercial interests i mean most of the whole complex is retail which is very interesting to me because i'm like really another mall <laughs> um but um so the so the, the vessel actually stands out as like the public it's like the place where you don't have to pay to go it's like the space that is dedicated to the public um and in the rollout in the the way that they were kind of thinking about this you know know, Heather Wick um, started calling it the social climber because it was like a way for people to be social and climb. But of course, there's that gross kind of aspirational, disgustingly capitalistic <laughs> like connotation. Um, they hired um, or they commissioned Alvin Ailey Dance Company to um, to design choreography actually around what is like so plainly the aesthetics of endurance. So like there's this little film where um, where Alvin Ailey dancers are like coming out of their houses, they're, they're like brownstones and like racing down the steps and starting to race everywhere. And down, the whole film is like different kinds of stairs. And the idea is like New York, you know, like where everyone's just hustling and, and you're, you're working so hard, right? And then in the end, like all of the dancers assemble coming out of the seven train the, at Hudson Yards, which was a, a subway station that was crucial to the entire redevelopment. Um, uh, and they all assemble and start doing this dance and their shadows as dancers form this kind of honeycomb pattern that is the vessel structure. So like, it's almost like the bodies of the public come together to kind of form this, this set of stairs, you know, this interconnected set of stairs. And it's, it's just so stunning the various ways that, um, the aesthetics of endurance and able-bodiedness like kind of compulsory able-bodiedness like inform this thing and and how it's just like such a fascinating kind of natural experiment too in folks awareness about ableism because so many people are like hate it or love it but don't have any um kind of you know uh understanding of the way that this this piece is is steeped in in ableist design and then as soon as you say it for some people it's like a major aha moment and for some people they're like well well there is an elevator you know there is an elevator and uh, but the elevator for most of the development of that piece had totally no information about how it would work at one point they were like only folks with physical disabilities can use that which was like a 
impressive optimism about how disability determination works. Like they were just going to have security guards being like, you're disabled enough. You're disabled. Like, you know, it just, it was so baffling through the whole, actually still partly because I signed the pledge, you know, I, I promise I would never go up there. Um, I still don't really know how it works. You know, they have at the, at the moment a kind of ticketing system. So it's free, but you kind of reserve space to go. And I have no idea what kind of stuff goes on at that, that interface when you use the, the elevator that was not uh, a part of the original design. And in fact, city agencies um, were involved after the design was released in, in thinking about how disability was excluded, really just to co-opt the consultation and be able to say, like, we had a meeting about it, right? And disabled activists are, you know, kind of being used uh, to say like, oh, well, they were in the room when we talked about it, but nothing changed after those meetings, you know, um, it, it's a real, it's an example of the real failure of consultation or like the performance of consultation where nothing meaningful happened. And it also, of course, shows you ableist commitments from the start, um, you know, determined to such a great extent the, the forms of exclusion that actually become built and materially um, informed. So, um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was so amazing to feel like, you know, Shannon and I were collaborating by having the P, you know, the, that article kind of printed on newsprint. Um, and then the way as Shannon described that, that the piece, um, or the, the, the front of the newspaper marked the whole scene. I mean, it was it was incredible to be on the ground and to see documentation of it later of the way that Shannon's different, um, uh, uh, again, like access aesthetics, the pillows, the hats, the, um, the newspapers, like did this really beautiful kind of um, uh, subtle intervention into the whole um, scene. It, it reminded me of, um, an artist, um, Ricardo Dominguez, who um, for uh, during the Obama era, I believe, had a project where he would go to the U.S.-Mexico border and smile at the border because there were many ways in which the regulatory apparatus, now I'm sure it's, it's even more intense, but under Obama, when it was still horrifying and tragic, um, uh, it was actually impossible to smile at the border, like like you would you would be breaking regulations, um, and so he would just stand there and smile. And there's like a photo, one of, like I think still his kind of faculty photo is him smiling at the border. And there's a border agent, you know, getting out of their car, just looking like I am going to tackle him. You know, th this kind of like intervention on the the subtle aesthetics of be taking up space and being in a place that is designed around exclusion. Um, I think the the anti-stairs club lounge takes its place, you know, in that legacy and also in the legacy of, you know, temporary or mobile libraries or exhibitions, you know, that are pop-ups, right, that show the kind, of, the kind of itinerant nature of these kinds of exhibitions as cited everywhere, you know, and also in, in not institutionalized, that they, they are temporary and they pop up. Um, there were so many aspects of that installation that allowed us to be angry and concerned and also be able to be with each other. And that's, that's a kind of aesthetic duality that I think disability artistry captures so, so well, you know, and that's what Shannon's work has been noted in the New York Times and in Out Magazine's art issue, right? Like, like your work, Shannon, is capturing that um, that complexity that I think more and more folks are are starting to understand and and see as legible. And I'll just like throw in there that what I um, what I kind of notice when I look at 
the photos and coverage of the anti-stairs lounge protest at Vessel and then also like the combination with Kevin's article is that both of you are operating within really a lineage of disability architectural criticism also like a lot of architectural critics or scholars wouldn't necessarily think of disabled people as architectural reviewers and critics, but actually we are and have been, and there's a history of using protests as architectural criticism too. So it's really striking to me here that there's like, you know, the text of a building review that brings in disability culture. And then the way that it's, I love, I mean, I wish, and we'll definitely include in the show notes links to this, um, but the idea of printing the text on one side of a newsprint and then the other side of it saying anti-stairs club lounge as a kind of protest sign that people are holding up. Um, that's to me very much kind of in the lineage of adapt protests and other groups like that, that do kind of disability direct action and have these really nuanced theoretical discussions in very material ways and public spaces. Well, and one thing that was really um, exciting for me to discover when I had created the project for the Wasaic project, you know, I had just been thinking about kind of like how to give it a distinctive feel. And so I was thinking about these kind of different elements um, to mark the space. And I made this like very little simple logo that was just this crossed out stairs symbol and later was watching a documentary about ADAPT and saw that um, they had the same symbol on a T-shirt that people were wearing at the Capitol crawl. And so that was really incredible for me to see kind of that connection and the ways that I think that an anti-stairs mentality has been kind of a part of um, disability protest and kind of, yeah, being part of that lineage was really incredible for me. Oh, wow. So that symbol that's sort of like a line drawing of stairs with a like, yeah, crossed out. Yeah, crossed out symbol as part of the Capitol Qual. That's really cool. I feel like there are a lot of ways to take that um, too. And I'll be curious to see how you kind of like play with that iconography or use it going forward. I can imagine like a bunch of people wearing temporary tattoos and walking around the city with them or rolling around and stuff. Well, and one other thing that um, I was really excited about with the uh, anti-stairs club lounge at the vessel is we made these beanies with the crossed out stairs symbol but then everyone who participated could take that with them if they wanted to and I, I love the way that that kind of like disperses the protest and becomes these like little mini anti-stairs club lounges like throughout the city and all of these different moments and places where people are yeah that's so great I was just going to say, I was just camping this past weekend and several of us have lower back issues. So we made sure that our camp setup had um, like back support, like you were talking about, like the, the decision to, you know, to make sure that the benches had a back um, for everyone who was there. Like, so every, no one had to like, you know, uh, feel like they didn't have an option for a back support. And at one point, the person who was my editor on the Avery review piece <laughs> was looking for just his color scheme just happened to be orange. And he was like, does anybody have an anti-stairs club lounge beanie? It would be perfect <laughs> for my, and then I was like, wait, this is an anti-stairs club. Like, because we're all thinking about making sure that this, uh, this whole, you know, it was just, it's, it, it, it perfectly disperses so that it's a natural kind of club. That's why I love about the club lounge right that it's a club and then every once in a while we assemble in a lounge right to to hang out together and then it's incredible to think about the ways probably many 
you know, totally unbeknownst to you that that form and just decentralize right and just start to crop up and and automate that those forms of gatherings there i'm struck also by the language of like club and lounge um and that's another place where you and kevin seem to have some synchronicities um because kevin just wrote that great piece called crip club vibes for uh, catalyst and um, so thinking about like these spaces of leisure and kind of hanging out um, that are not often uh, thought of as disability spaces or if they are disability is kind of like an add on or something like that. So do you want to say a little bit more about those terms, club and lounge? Yeah, I think for me, the idea of a club has always been it's something that I thought about a lot. I think one thing I think about is the way that ableism functions by isolating disabled people and by like, yeah, telling us that our needs and desires are these kind of personal individual issues. And and that any time where you're creating connection between disabled people, like that's very political. And so the idea of like creating a club that, um, marks an alignment, even if it's around an alignment around something as vague as being anti-stairs, um, seems really exciting to me. And then, yeah, the idea of a lounge, I think for me, yeah, kind of like conjures leisure and relaxation and, um, yeah, kind of like a certain kind of like basking, um, that I think is really interesting. And it's, there was a review of Anti-Stairs Club Lounge at the Wasaic Project where someone referred to it in the kind of lineage of a waiting room. And I, I was, it was kind of jarring to me because, um, yeah, that's, I think, a really different, um, a different vibe than what I was going to. Like, I was thinking about it much more, um, yeah, around like a VIP lounge or something like that kind of experience. Um, but it's, yeah, I think it was just simply a around the ways that disability is so medicalized. And so people are always reaching for analogies in medical environments in relation to the work. Um, so anyway. Yeah, I mean, what an interesting point of contrast, like the kind of anxiety ridden waiting room space at the doctor's office or whatever versus the space that's just welcoming and there are snacks and there are places to like hang out and yeah. I was at the Museum of Design Atlanta probably six or seven years ago, and there was this exhibition on modernist proposals for airports. And I think it was Charles and Ray Eames. It could have been another modernist, but in my mind it was them. And they had proposed this thing that I always, whenever I'm at the airport, which is like pretty much the most inaccessible place for me, I always think about this and I'm like, oh, wouldn't it have been nice if this ever happened? And it was that instead of having a huge building where you walk for like two miles to get to your gate, where you check in, you would load up on this bus that would be a very wide mobile lounge. And it would have really like it would have drinks and food and like 
there would be basically the flight attendants would be on the lounge so their work would start at that point and you would like hang out and there would be like these fun chairs to sit in and because you know charles and Reims, they've designed all those plywood chairs they like invented the bent plywood kind of thing and then you would just like go in there and relax and then when it was time to go to your flight the lounge would drive you out to the airplane and then you'd get on the airplane and i think about that all the time because you would totally avoid the sensory experience of an airport which is like to me it's like apocalyptic like it's just so bad and there's so many ways that i have to like cover myself and like protect myself from that and also there's this kind of user experience thing and then the furniture of course so i kind of i just like wanted to share that with you because it seems like a version in a way of what you're talking about but instead of for stairs it's about walking long distances and yeah eliminate that well, and I just love that even as like a vision for transportation of any kind that it's like, yeah, like let's, uh, yeah, let's lounge it up while we're on the go. <laughs> I guess that's maybe what a limousine is. I don't know. <laughs> I, don't, yeah. like, I don't really, I don't think that they got to the point where they're like physically producing them. But kind of like a trailer almost like a trailer incredible finished, and kind of you know very space agey lots of natural light and kind of like low cushion seating and bar yeah. stools like all of that kind of stuff um, yeah yeah being transported is like such an access dream of, you know it's like anytime that I can like just be and then get to where I'm trying to go is like just feels incredible so I love that idea <laughs> Um, yeah and so that like the airplane experience it's like an extension of the airplane experience and I'm sure that back then airplanes were also way more comfortable than they are now like in terms of seat size and that sort of thing but yeah it's definitely it's something to think about and what I had seen in the exhibition was actually this like Flint's or Jetson's style cartoon that they had created that laid out this kind of like speculative vision of what this uh, mobile That's lounge amazing. could be like. So I wonder if you, you might be able to find it. Um, kind of related to that, one thing I was noticing as both of you all were talking was just like the kind of, there's something here about the material textures of there's like vessel and then also of the seating and the beanies and um, the cushions. And it reminded me, um, of another interview that I recorded just a few days ago with Sp Sky Kubakub. Do you know them? They do rebirth garments and we were talking about chainmail. Like they create chainmail as a sort of like queer crip body armor. And there's something that's really interesting about, so Vessel looks like this weird beehive of made of stairs. Um, and it's a very kind of porous structure um, that is somehow part of its aesthetic in the ways that Kevin's pointing out, it's like the aesthetic endurance or whatever. I don't really know what to say about that sort of material, but, and then there's like the, um, the materiality of like the benches, the plywood benches, uh, which has like its own kind of like comfort and probably like texture and temperature and cause it's wood and stuff like that. And then these hats, which are knit and it seems like, 
maybe there's some intentionality behind like the beanie versus some other sort of hat. Um, and then the pillows, which you also mentioned, were kind of like an iteration after the museum benches. So could you just like say a little bit about that? Like, does that is there something about like woven or like cushioned or like, you know, how are all these materials are working together or talking to each other somehow? Yeah, I think, I don't know if this is exactly an answer to your question, but one thing that I think about a lot in relation to the material choices that I'm making my work is this David Hammond's quote that goes something along the lines of make it as cheaply as possible and insist that that's the correct aesthetic. Mm. Um, and so for me, yeah, just figuring out kind of like the simplest, easiest way to do it. And I, I also think about that quote in relation to my body and the way that my body affects the way that I make and what I make. Um, I would say the benches are a little bit of an exception to that. Like that, those are something that's like really um, complicated for me to deal with, like carrying them, transporting them, stuff like that. Um, but yeah, something like the beanies, it's like um, very simple and kind of uh, easy for me to make, easy for me to transport. Um, and yeah, I think that's something I'm always thinking about kind of like what, what's like right around me. So the cushions that I made for Anti-Stairs Club Lounge, they're um, Ikea cushions that I then painted and kind of like added to and, and made Anti-Stairs. But like thinking about things that are, yeah, easy for me to get, easy for me to use, um, and then kind of like using those as building blocks for for making things and then i think that the other thing that i would say about in terms of materials yeah i mean i think it's also a like about um you know like handmadeness has always been important in my work and um i think for me sometimes like having that kind of like attention in the work is well, I think about it in two ways. One is that I just love the way that handmade things for me just kind of like resonate with my body in this certain way where I like, I love things that are like a little skewed or wobbly or asymmetrical. Like that's just something that, um, yeah, for me, I'm like, that's, that's like me. I love that. Um, but then also thinking about the way that something handmade can show this kind of like care and attention. Um, and so for example, with Anti-Stairs Club Lounge at the Wasake Project, like I really wanted people to come into that space and feel, um, yeah, feel kind of like cared for and that they were in a space that had been really uh, intentionally created for them. Yeah, cool. Um, so that's a good segue, I think, into this point that came up earlier that I wanted to circle back to about, um, creating work that's primarily for disability culture and for other disabled people. You want to, would you like to say more about that? Yeah. I mean, I think I'm someone who grew up really isolated from other disabled people. There were never really, I mean, I grew up in Berkeley, California, right in like the center of all of this amazing disability culture. And I was, I was never encouraged to, um, connect with other dis disabled people to find disabled role models. Um, and yeah, that, that was um, hard for me. And as I got older, um, really, and through disability studies, um, that was the point where I even understood that my experience was culturally shaped. Um, 
and shared. Like I, I hadn't even really realized that growing up. Um, and so, yeah, I think I, I had this experience around disability where I, where I just like didn't feel like I learned anything about disability from mainstream culture, but through the kind of writing and thinking and art of other disabled people, there was this kind of mirroring that happened where I felt like I was able to understand myself and the way I moved through the world in a really different, um, different way. And so I think for me, being part of that process is like the most exciting thing that can happen with my work. Um, like making a thought or a feeling tangible in a different way or valid um, in a way that's that it is not um, in kind of like mainstream spaces. Um, and so that that for me is really why I think about the other disabled people as the core audience for my work is because I really want to make something yeah, that, that is kind of like for us. Um, and, and I think it's also, um, you know, and I've talked to other disabled artists about this, the teaching and the reaching out to non-disabled people can be so exhausting to, to constantly be kind of like reiterating um, these very basic ideas that, that disabled people have been talking about for, for decades, you know, um, and so it also feels like a little bit of a shortcut in some ways to instead of like continuing to go back to those basics to like create this really vibrant internally facing kind of like culture that that non-disabled people can be on the outside looking in and they can see how exciting and rich and interesting it is but that it we don't have to like continually like explain or check in with them and be like oh do you do you get this do you are you you know are you with us on this um and that that's like helps us operate at more of the level that that we are at as a community in terms of our understanding of of how the world should be. Yeah, I mean, I think in the <clears throat> activist work we've been doing, one of the major um, trends I see is non-disabled people believing that um, the best and most like humble way to approach the learning that they need to do is by deferring the work itself actually. So a lot of folks will say like, I don't know anything about this. And you know, as a scholar, I'm like, you do know a lot about disability in fact, cause disability ableism is public culture. So even if your learning was in gym class when you were younger, like you actually do know a lot. Don't, you know, whatever they met, there's a status assigned to disability from the beginning that people think I am an outsider as a non-disabled person. And in many, you know, in some ways that's true, but there's, there's, um, I think the, the hurdle that we, we, you know, are constantly faced with is how to get non-disabled people to recognize that they don't need to and can't continue to defer the work of, um, of undoing ableism to disabled people, which, you know, is exhausting, as Shannon said, it's often uncompensated. It's a lot of coffee dates, you know, where, where non-disabled people are like, tell me, tell me, tell me. But by the end, you don't really get the sense that they're going to um, actually go back and do the reading and do the do the advocacy um, so uh, so creating work that's just like y'all can come and um, hang out and watch and experience if you want but you're not the audience like you're not the specific audience and we don't need to teach you is a huge shift and it also you know one of the buzzwords in um, like you know disability or a, a diversity equity and inclusion DEI initiatives in the art world I think in New York but also 
uh, broader than that is the buzzword would be placemaking. You know, a lot of people think like this is what we need to do. Recognize, um, let's say, like geospatial um, distributions of various ethnic or racial communities, and for disability community, that doesn't what placemaking means to a lot of funders and activists um, isn't the same, right? Because disability isn't one community that is cited. Um, especially in New York, where transportation is such a major problem for organizing on a basic level. You just can't guarantee that physical co-location is the way to organize. And of course, there's many ways that um, disability and incarceration determine disability culture. So the disabling forces at work in mass incarceration um, uh, and the limits to, you know, what what kinds of, again, like placemaking is possible when people do not have um, uh, the freedom for their own mobility. Um, so, you know, it, it's kind of amazing that um, uh, there's so many projects that are doing, you know, what Shannon is kind of um, doing, where it's like just, just decentralizing and, de and decentering the idea that like one place is the, like the, the, the kind of amazing uh, paradox or contradiction in the club lounge is that it's not like one space, right? That it, that you take things home, like you take the beanie home, you take the, the pillow home, it goes out, it goes around. Um, and those become a kind of like natural resources, I feel like in Crip um, community building, you know, that you're always like sharing the heating pad and the, the couch that people need to come and hang on. And, um, so, yeah, so I see, I, you know, I, 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 I engage with a lot of folks who are using other models that they see might work um, for diversity, equity, and inclusion in other initiatives. And I'm just like, it needs to, it needs to be completely recalibrated for, for disability inclusion and justice. And, um, and that's where Shannon's work is so instructive, right? That like, it's really helpful to say, here's, here's what we mean by placemaking. Um, place itself needs to be completely, um, you know, reevaluated. I, I also want to bring another dimension into this kind of idea of um, creating art for disability culture, thinking about Shannon, your work specifically, and the two pieces that we've talked about so far, the, the um, benches, and then also the mobile lounge, and the way that other people, people who may not be part of disability culture, or maybe they are, are called in to make commitments. So there's the like, sit if you agree on the benches, and then signing the pledge. Um, and it's sort of like you're recruiting for disability culture, you know, uh, <laughs> and giving people like, a way to be like, yes, I opt into this. So yeah, I mean, I think it's, um, it's always fascinating to see non disabled people's responses to these very basic commitments that are required. They're both at the Wasaic project and at the vessel. There are a lot of non disabled people who are like, well, but I want to be part of it, but I don't, I don't want to do it. And it, it, that's always like really interesting for me to see that kind of hesitancy and the way that just like so many things are open to non-disabled people that having even these really small barriers can be like very jarring for people. Um, yeah. And I think, um, yeah, it, I think it's just important for me 
in the work to to be like you can be part of this like this like what we're doing is exciting and great and like yes welcome but like you can't just like kind of flit in and out like you do have to make some sort of commitment to this and and show some solidarity around this um in order to to kind of yeah be part of this with us yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense that, you know, a lot of people, non-disabled people may assume that, you know, like, there should just be access to everything or that everything is for them. And, um, you know, there are many types of spaces that we would create that are for marginalized communities, specifically in first. And it seems like you're doing something that kind of like allows people who are not part of those communities to still access those spaces if they're willing to do the work. So I wonder if we could transition now to talking about uh, some new and upcoming projects that you have going on. Do you want to, are there any that you want to share with us? I'm currently a resident at iBeam in um, Brooklyn, New York. And here I've been doing a project about image description and alt text. Um, Again, kind of going back to what I was talking about in terms of being someone whose practice has been very visually oriented and trying to figure out um, what my role is in making my work accessible and um, kind of like how I can be part of that process. Mm. Um, And so the project that I've been doing here is is kind of like three part, um, but the first part was developing this workshop curriculum um, around the idea of alt text as poetry, which is, I think, honestly like a pretty um old idea in disability community the idea that like descriptive text can be poetic and creative and a a kind of generative practice um but specifically trying to engage with artists around that idea and getting artists to think about um uh either like writing description for their own work or kind of like um collaborating with specific people and kind of like designing what 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 that um, description is like. Um, And then also just kind of on a logistical level, like I think that artists have, um, there's potential for artists to drive change in this area, which there's this practice that comes up all the time when you send images and you send an image to a gallery and you send the title and the dimensions and the materials and the year. And so like what happens if artists are also sending the alt text with the image that it, it really starts to travel with the image and then what that prompts for the gallery in terms of understanding their own specifically web accessibility and, and kind of accessibility on social media. Um, and then the next part of the, there's also a, basically a workbook version of that. So just a different kind of mode of, of distributing that information. Um, and then the, the next part of the project, which I'm really excited about is going to be, um, basically like an online group exhibition. So uh, like eight to 15 artists and, but all of the imagery of the work will be absent and it will only be experienced through description. And you'll have the option to switch between different describers. So described by the artist, described by each of the curators, I'll work with a poet to do a set of description. Um, There may be other kind of describers and I think that project will be themed around portraiture. Um, and that I, that's an area of description that I think is um, really interesting and unresolved, which is like how, um, 
we see ourselves and how we want to be represented to the world aligns with how other people perceive us. Um, and, and so, yeah, hopefully that project will um, explore that a little bit. Oh, that's great. Um, I think that that I can already imagine the sort of intervention and like conversation that that would contribute to because there's such a debate, for example, around if you're describing people, do you specify their race and their gender and, you know, their disability, if it's a parent, like that kind of stuff. Um, and some people really think like, no, you should never do that. And there are two, they're like the people who think you shouldn't do that because you should only like description should only be objective and, you know, whatever objective I'm saying that like in scare quotes. <laughs> um, and then there are also the people who are like, don't assume my gender and don't assume my race. And so portraiture is pretty much like almost entirely about those kinds of presentation of self sorts of things. So it'll be really interesting to um, to use that project also as an example and having these conversations um, or like training people to do alt text descriptions and stuff. Yeah, I think my feeling about um, description in general has been like, like we just need more people who are engaged in this practice. Like we as a culture have not built our collective toolkit around what what this practice is and how we approach it. And um, yeah, part, part of the kind of larger goal with this project is just to get more people doing it so that we can kind of like learn, learn from each other and try to, um, yeah, figure out different ways of approaching it. Yeah, well, thank you so much, Shannon, for making the time to talk to us about your work, which is so amazing and exciting. And um, I'm really excited to share this conversation with other folks, too, so that they can be thinking about these things. It was, yes, absolutely my pleasure. It's so exciting to have these conversations with other people who are thinking about the same topics, because there's just... Yeah, such a richness to them and so exciting to just kind of hear both of your thoughts on, on some of the things. And so, yeah, thank you so much for having me. All cultures have rituals. Rituals can be ways to change material circumstances, politics, lived experience, or even spiritual realities. So rituals are a method for designing a better world. In disability culture, we often use rituals as ways of designing and anticipating a more accessible future. What role does ritual play in your life? And what rituals could you imagine designing to ensure a better future for you and other members of disability culture and community? The Critical Design Lab invites submissions to an art exhibition called Crip Ritual, which will be on display in spring 2021. You can submit your artworks to the exhibition for consideration via our website, www.cripritual.com, or participate on social media using hashtag Crip Ritual. You've been listening to Contra, a podcast about disability, design justice, and the life world. Contra is a production of the Critical Design Lab. Learn more about our projects at mapping-access.com and be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. If you've enjoyed this episode, please head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. 
The Contra podcast is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike, international 3.0 license. That means you can remix, repost, or recycle any of the content as long as you cite the original source, aren't making money, you don't change the credits, and you share it under the same license.